Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehell. If you missed it a few weeks ago, we checked in to a poorly run hotel that was trying to mimic the success of a similar hotel based out of the British seaside town of Torquay. If I die before you, I'm to be cremated and my ashes blown into your eyes. <laughs> Suffice to say, it was foolish of them to even try to mess with the success of a more obvious classic. And for a little while, we thought Hollywood learned its lesson about doing so. That little while turned out to be 16 years, when in 1999, certain people didn't bother to read their history books, or the books were probably buried in a dumpster never to be found again. Because believe it or not, somebody thought it would be a good idea to reboot Faulty Towers for a third time. In the mid-season of 1999, when NBC's monolithic must-see TV lineups and ABC's string of family hits ruled the air, CBS was just then trying to reverse almost a decade of misfortune in the ratings. While hit shows like Survivor and CSI had yet to hit the airwaves, the Eye at least had a strong enough foothold with drama. But that wasn't enough for them to be the number one network once again. The only two comedies they had in the top 30 that year were the critically acclaimed Everybody Loves Raymond and the much underappreciated Becker with Ted Danson. Plus, long-running hit The Nanny was in its final season. Not unlike ABC in 1983, CBS needed an infusion of comedy that could help break out of their slump once and for all. Enter the writing team of Judd Pillett and John Peasley, who wrote for a number of series over the years and were probably best known for writing several episodes of the long-running Coach. As Coach was wrapping up, the duo went on to create the critically acclaimed but short-lived Something So Right for NBC. After that ended, the duo were plotting their next move. With a string of hits for two TV networks under their belts, Hillett and Peasley decided to try their luck at CBS. While the circumstances as to how they were able to convince network executives to reboot Faulty Towers are relatively unknown, even in the vastness of the internet, Hillett and Peasley still managed to do so by doing the one thing that Elliot Scheinman forgot to do when creating Amanda's. They actually asked for John Cleese and Connie Booth's blessing and permission to do the show. And they got it. Don't get used to that sound around here, folks. That's not what we're about. But yes, they got the seal of approval from the one person who probably cared more about Basil Fawlty than Basil himself. Which is a little redundant because Cleese is actually Basil himself. But I digress. With that floodgate opened, this new retelling of Fawlty Towers suddenly had a chance before an episode was even filmed. Now, all that was needed was a cast that was as close to on par as possible, but not without making extra sure things weren't too much like the original product. After all, there can only be one Faulty Towers, and if there were to be any imitators, it better be a sincere form of flattery. Of course, no matter how well the intentions are, comparisons will be inevitable anyway. One will be showered with praise for how brilliant it is, while the other will have no choice but to live out its days as an imposter. 
only for it to be branded with a red-hot poker that's baking in the coals of Telehell. The first thing that Pillet and Peasley had to do to lay the foundation for Faulty 99 was find a cast of durable actors to properly port the original roles. Not like in Amanda's when role reversal, substitution, and unnecessary additions were part of the equation. Pillet and Peasley knew that if they were going to cover the source material, they had to stick to the core group. The pompous hotel owner, his shrill yet stern wife, the befuddled bellhop, and the level-headed maid. With that, let's begin with the thing they got wrong in casting this version as opposed to what Amanda's got right, the role of the bellhop. Whereas before we were treated to the likes of Manuel and Aldo, this show took a more, shall we say, exotic approach in the form of Mo, played by Rick Batalla. You saved my life. I serve you for all eternity. You're fine. Oh. Now what do I do for the rest of eternity? <laughs> Though we're not going to fault the actor for the portrayal, this does raise a question or two for whoever wrote his material. Presumably, Hillett and Peasley and whoever else was on the writing staff. Regardless, the rest of the cast remains solid on paper. In one of her first regular TV series roles, the part of Polly became Breeze O'Rourke and was played by future Buffy, Angel, and Dexter star Julie Benz. For comparison, though, the character evolved somewhat from a level-headed art student to a level-headed art student who was saving herself from marriage. Which, if you've ever seen Benz as Darla in the Buffyverse, you realize just how big a 180 that would be later on. But on the plus side, at least that would show her future range. No, Mo, take off the uniform. What? No, Mo, just leave it on, please. Take it off, Mo. Breeze. Mo, another great thing about America is leverage. Now, what do you want? Rotenbeer? <laughs> No, that's beverage. Sybil Faulty becomes Constance, sometimes referred to as Connie, perhaps a nod to the original Faulty's co-creator. She's not as shrill as the original's counterpart, played by Prunella Scales, but she still knows how to break a ball or two. She's played thanklessly and effortlessly by veteran performer and survivor of poltergeist attacks, Joe Beth Williams. Well, have you noticed that with each year of our marriage, I start drinking earlier and earlier in the day? <laughs> I think that's about. I don't know, but if it helps, God bless. <laughs> and then there's our new Basil, someone who had to capture the spirit of the original, but not quite 100%. Someone who served shade to his hotel patrons and staff like a short order cook would sling eggs on toast. He had to have the chops, the wit, the timing, the snark, and a little dash of sleaze in order to pull it off. Though having the hardware to show for his previous efforts didn't hurt either. With five Emmy wins under his belt, the producers thought they hit a home run when they cast the one and only John Larroquette in the title role of Royal Pain. Why aren't we in the mobile guy? I'll tell you why, because we attract the bottom feeding slime of society. Good morning, everything all right, excellent. Wait a minute. That can't be right. There's no way that a team of people who have won multiple accolades over the years decided to name their main character something as eye-rollingly grown-worthy as Royal Pain. Could they? Royal. 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 And for that matter, that also means the wife's name is Connie Payne. 
Constance Payne. As in constant pain? This is uh, my wife, Constant uh, Constance Payne. <laughs> so let me get this straight. We've got a royal pain and a constant pain, and we haven't even looked at an episode yet? Is it too late to add a tenth circle of telehealth for bad puns? Okay, just asking, just asking. Regardless of that lapse in creativity, everything was ready to go. Perhaps a little too soon, however, as the show was originally planned for a fall 1998 premiere. Instead, for reasons only the network would know, it got pushed back to the spring of 1999. No worries there, since it gave Pillett and Peasley a little more time to flesh things out. Up to and including a set design that, give or take some minor differences, copied the same floor plan as the original show. To further cement Cleese and Booth's involvement in the project, they gave permission for the crew to do an adaptation of one of Faulty's most memorable episodes, Gourmet Night, as the new show's pilot episode. But perhaps because the failure of Amanda's was still a looming specter over everybody's heads, and that people wanted to see how the show would do on its own merits, that episode wound up airing fifth in rotation. And by the way, we will not be doing another comparison between shows this time because we've already exceeded our BBC clip quota for the entire season on the Amanda's episode, and I'd like us to survive past 12 episodes without getting in trouble. For now, though, let's raise the curtain on the first episode that actually aired. March 15th, 1999. Spring was just around the corner. The economy was the best it had ever been and will ever be for a very long time. Cher and Britney Spears were topping the charts with songs that we have no chance in hell of playing in a million years due to how expensive it is to do that. And at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain, we checked in to yet another hotel, The Whispering Pines, that was owned and operated by a man named Payne. Our story begins with Royal Payne. God, every time I say that name, I feel dumber trying to be nice to outgoing customers thanks to some compliment cards that his wife Constance, uh, I mean Constance Payne, tells him to use, as well as the subtle hint that will help drive the plot of the episode. Is there anything nice you want to say to me for a special day? Excuse me? No, dear, that's what you say after a loud belch. <laughs> after a little give and take between Payne and Mr. Stereotype, uh, I mean Mo. Room 212, take robe. Where else but America can you buy a $8 robe Slap a cheap logo on it and charge 75 bucks for it. <laughs> Darla, I mean Breeze, comes in to kick off the second piece of the plot. This pin was in the dining room. Lovely. And a pair of ladies' underwear from the man in 210. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, the Reverend Kingsley. <laughs> Payne takes the pin to a secret wall safe in his office while he gives the rest of the items to Mo to take home to his family. Oh, Mo! What'd I do? What'd I do? got some things to send back to your family. Thank you. Uh, make sure I get a receipt. As the credits roll, we also get another nod to the original Faulty, in that a sight gag happens to the sign outside of the hotel. On the original, however, the letters in the sign would turn into a naughty anagram of sorts, whether it be flay otters, fatty owls, or my personal favorite, farty towels. Here, though, the sign just falls over. How riveting. Act one begins with Connie continuing to drop subtle hints as to what day this is. You don't have a clue, do you? About what, darling? Today is... The first day of the rest of your life. <laughs> or for you, perhaps the last. 
Connie then throws a curveball. It's my birthday. That's right. <laughs> Happy birthday, precious. It's our anniversary. Gotcha. And here's where we see probably the biggest problem with this adaptation. In the original, Basil Fawlty is a patently bitter man who loathes his wife and is resentful of other people who have had greater success than him. We put emphasis on loathes his wife because in the original, Sybil Fawlty can get Basil to do whatever she wants on command with a simple yet stern... Basil! But here, all we get is passive-aggressive sniping that doesn't really level down anybody. It just feels like a typical married couple after two decades. Nothing really unusual about that. On top of that, for a show that's trying to be its own thing, it isn't exactly doing that by invoking one of the oldest sitcom tropes of all, the forgotten event story. It doesn't matter if it's an anniversary, or a birthday, or a wedding, or a bar mitzvah. Next to Beauty and the Beast, this too is a tale as old as time. The only way it could be improved is if they add a wrinkle to it that nobody has tried before. How does that turn out? Well, luckily, we have a MacGuffin at the ready. As Royal Payne... Seriously, does he have a half-brother named Major or something? He retrieves the brooch pin that was placed in the wall safe from earlier. Just then, a wild fishmongering stereotype appears. Everyone else come through the front door! Why not me and the fish? Because you and your fish stink. You stink! My fish in water all day. When last time you in water? <laughs> and we hope you paid attention to that guy because he'll play a key part in the climax later on. Until then, the show already has a perfectly good stereotype in use. Might tempt fate. Anyway, Payne gives his wife the pin, much to her delight and to the convenience of the plot. Oh, Royal, oh, it is the most... Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you. I can't wait to show it to Breeze. Oh, no, 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 don't, don't, don't. She's a virgin. Jewelry will drive her crazy. After which, we get our next piece of it as the customer who lost the pin is trying to get it back. I was halfway home when I realized that I have lost this beautiful diamond pin. Whoa, no! <laughs> Kidding. Breeze gets wise as to what's going on, but not before Payne finds out a big secret about the pin. It was given to my grandfather by J. Edgar Hoover. DJ Edgar Hoover. Yeah. You, I knew he wore dresses. I had no idea he accessorized. After a few moments of buttering up the customer, the customer then offers a reward for the pin's return, much to the disapproval of Breeze. End of Act One. On to Act Two. Payne is still schmoozing with the customer. You just stay here and relax, Mrs. Aubrey. I have a very good feeling about finding that pin. Oh, I hope so. After which, we have more Manuel-esque frivolity with Mr. Stereotype. When you get into my room, go to my armoire. Armoire? <laughs> yes, armoire Sadat. I've got the late dead president of Egypt in my room. Followed by more cross-examination from Breeze. I think what you're doing to Mrs. Aubrey is despicable. That's a pretty big word for a little girl who just lost a job. I'm going right to Mrs. Payne. That's a pretty silly plan for a little girl who just got a raise. Afterwards, Breeze discovers Connie wearing the missing pin and shooting Mr. Payne a look that could have doubled as one of Darla's demon powers. After which, we have Connie suggesting something that Sybil Faulty would never do in a million years. Let me take you upstairs. I want to give you your present. It's a sexy negligee with all the trimmings. The Paynes go up to their room for a little private anniversary gift giving, until Mr. Payne realizes that Mo was still up there. 
as well as the reminder that this show aired at 8.30, 7.30 Central and Mountain. Mo! Why are you yelling? Oh, no, not yelling, just said, Mo! What's wrong with you? I don't, I don't know, it's like temporary Tourette's. Mo, Mo, bitch, bitch, smell my feet! Kane eventually finds Mo hiding in their bed and tries to kick him out. Please get me out. I don't want to hear you and Mrs. Payne lying down as man and wife. It will harm me. I will have dreams. After a little more hemming and hawing, Mo manages to pick up the Payne's dressing screen and sneak out of the room like a cartoon character would walk around with a haystack. <laughs> Mo gets out of the room. End of Act 2. Payne will be right back. Processing what we have so far, we wouldn't say it's a terrible show, but it's definitely not the same standards as the original product. Especially since just about every element of this show has been done millions of times on many shows before it. Maybe that's what its biggest crime is. The fact that there's something of a gold standard variety to compare it to in the first place might actually be giving the illusion that it's bad by default, but not necessarily on its own merits. Let's see how the climax pans out. Royal Pain, which continues to make me sad on the inside the more I say it out loud, gets the pin back, followed by inflicting more Manuel-esque pain on Mo in the kitchen. Ow! <laughs> that hurt, bud? <sighs> a little more than this. After a little more give and take between Pain and Breeze, Connie enters the kitchen, leaving Pain little time to hide the pin again. So, what does he do? He gives the pin back to Mo, only for Mo to hide it in a boiling pot of soup. Oh, oh, hey, hide this, hide this. The search resumes for the missing pin as Payne interrupts a lunch service. What the hell are you doing? Um, cutting the shrimp. Wanted to make sure they're evenly distributed. You have to count the shrimp? Well, they're not gonna hold their little hands up for roll call. Payne ultimately finds the pin in, of all places, the bowl of soup that the customer who lost it in the first place is eating out of. Look, look what I found! My pin! Oh. This is wonderful! Oh. Thank you! Thank you! Oh. No thanks are necessary. Oh. The reward is reward enough. You would think that would be the end of the story, but what about Connie searching for the pin? Well, just as Mr. Payne is getting his reward... Uh, I can't find it anywhere! Her medication. All seems to be lost when, in the convenience to end all conveniences, the customer loses the pin for the second time. This time in the hotel parking lot. Just in time for our wild fishmongering stereotype to reappear. Oh, what I find! A pin! I find a diamond pin! There's just enough time left to haggle. How much? $1,000. $1,000? I can go to Vegas for a week! Followed immediately by the customer returning once again to let the cat out of the bag. That's my pin. Oh, no, it's mine. I, I, I got it for my anniversary. No, it's mine. I lost it here this morning. And for Connie to land one on Mr. Payne's bag. Royal. Boom, boom. <laughs> Slam cut to black or in John Larroquette's case, Black and Blue. So there you have it, the first aired episode of Pain. And while the show certainly lived up to its title in a few places, it's pretty hard to argue with the fact that Pain was the more faithful adaptation of Faulty than Amanda's was. This is in large part to John Cleese actually being involved in Pain's production, but still in a somewhat passive way. 
Though incidentally, there were rumors that if the show managed to go on to a second season, Cleese himself would have made an appearance as Larroquette's rival, the owner of a far more successful hotel chain that was the polar opposite of Basil Fawlty in every conceivable way. He would have been polite, courteous, and actually cared for the people who work with him. Essentially, it'd be Basil from the Bizarro world. Nevertheless, the show did recreate some of the better-known episodes of Faulty to a point. If you have a chance, check out the Gourmet Night adaptation called Pacific Ocean Duck, among the episodes that exist on YouTube. While that was indeed the single highlight of the series, the problem there was that they did it a little too identically, thus leaving Payne with little room to make it their own aside from the cast and the locale. Of course, in the words of the great British TV presenter Victor Lewis Smith, its critics were less kind. Case in point, this March 15, 1999 edition of the New York Post, where columnist Michelle Greppi had this to say, and we quote, It's supposed to be inspired by faulty towers, but it lacks inspiration of any kind. It also lacks John Cleese, whose giddy style of slapstick is a form of ballet that could put a smile on the face of the oldest guard at Buckingham Palace. Alas, as the huckster-ish misanthrope running a small California inn, John Larroquette only puts the royal in pain. Seriously, they could come up with a better royal pain punchline than I can right now. Anyway, the review goes on to say the following. Pain is so lowbrow, it's downright stupid. The musty, vaudevillish jokes come from nowhere, go nowhere, and do nothing to advance character or plot, if you can call what pain has plot. Royal forgets the Payne's 16th anniversary, even though in the episode they clearly say 22. That's why our marriage has lasted 22 years. 19. We did it again! Boom, boom, boom! And gives Connie a pin left behind by a guest. A kindergarten class could predict what will happen when the guest returns to look for her pin. Forget the John Larroquette show. This will go down as his nadir. End quote. Well... It wouldn't be the New York Post without something stinging and venomous, so we gotta give them props there. Nevertheless, Payne and his hotel were declared condemned after eight out of nine episodes that aired, though the ninth episode did air internationally. So, which floors of our hotel of hell do both of these shows check into? Let's find out as the front desk readies the keys to our nine circles. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. Both shows are obvious candidates for sharing the fraud circle. In spite of their best efforts, they still took on the task of trying to recreate something that not only already existed, but didn't need to be perfected in the first place. The original Faulty aired only 12 episodes, and it was perfect. Amanda's in Pain aired less than that, while giving us something that we already saw before, and the result was less than underwhelming. Which also brings up the point that despite its short run, Faulty still ran late night or during pledge drives on most PBS stations at that time, thus leading to potential overexposure when the inferior versions aired. That means both shows also get to check in to our gluttony circle. Because after all, there is such a thing as too much of a good thing. As for how they differ, as much as we agree that Pain was the better show, it was also the better cash grab, especially for John Cleese, who was more than eager to see his vision take on another life. This causes Payne to take on the extra amenity of the greed circle. All Cleese had to do was say that the producers had his blessing and he could go along his merry way. But perhaps because of the failure of Amanda's, Cleese may have felt the need to overdo it on the course correction, thus leading him to being more involved than he probably should have been. 
Then again, the original show was his idea, and you know how protective creative people can be sometimes. On the flip side, maybe Payne had to be good by comparison because the ripoff before that was the bigger shock to the system. Amanda's took so much from the source material without asking for it that it almost felt like their faulty faulty was more of the blatant ripoff, meaning that room service is ready to bring Amanda's a glass of freshly squeezed heresy. Even if the audience watching were living under a rock, they knew an imposter when they saw it. And again, because of just how frequently the reruns of the original were running on PBS even back then, they weren't too eager to spot a wolf in B. Arthur's clothing. Between both shows, Amanda's and Payne earned four out of nine circles of telehell. There's a fine line between a ripoff of something and a faithful adaptation. While both Payne and Amanda's suffered in their own unique ways, the whole thing felt a little too mean-spirited and off-model compared to the original. Which, considering the kinds of characters Lara Kett played over the years, it should have sounded like a walk-off home run. But when there's something vastly superior to compare it to, the exposure of flaws are all but a certainty. And yet, it still came off better than Amanda's, which despite a handful of its own silver linings was also ultimately undone by there being a stronger piece of source material to live up to. Whether it was blatantly borrowing things from it without asking, or getting the A-OK -okay from the Keeper of the Flame, as long as there's already something in existence that has a high benchmark, perhaps in some cases, it's best to leave that benchmark right where it is. Trying to reach it seems like a task that would take more than somebody's blessing to achieve. As for everybody else involved with both shows, we mentioned B. Arthur finding greater achievements with the Golden Girls a few years after Amanda's was canceled, as well as working on multiple TV shows and movies until her passing in 2009. The creator of Amanda's, Elliot Scheinman, has continued to have great success in television, being a writer and producer for such hits as Home Improvement, as well as winning an Emmy for Outstanding Comedy Series while working for the first season of The Cosby Show. Huh, that's strange. Anyway, Fred McCarran, who played B. Arthur's son, would continue to act through the 80s and part of the 90s, ultimately wrapping his acting career alongside B. Arthur once more in a 1991 episode of The Golden Girls. He left acting to take care of his family until he passed away in 2006. Simone Griffith, who played the daughter-in-law, remains active in acting, appearing in various bit parts, guest shots, and roles in short films. Most recently, a 2017 piece called Catch and Kill. We neglected to mention Rick Hurst last time. He was the one who played Amanda's chef, Earl Nash. He too remains active in the business, doing guest shots for previous shows like Family Matters, Perfect Strangers, and The Wonder Years, among many. Tony Rosato, who played Aldo the Bellhop, had a very long career, not just in acting, but in the voiceover world, working for shows like Super Mario World, Da Boom Crew, Scaredy Squirrel, and Sam and Max Freelance Police, among others. Sadly, in 2005, Rosato was charged with harassment of his wife, which turned out to be the byproduct of being diagnosed with Capgras Syndrome, a disorder that makes one believe that loved ones were replaced by imposters. After a term of medical care, Rosato was able to resume his acting career in 2009, and continued to work until his passing in 2017. As for the cast of Pain, both John Larroquette, Joe Beth Williams, Julie Benz, and Rick Batalla all continue to work to this day, and all have prolific credits to their name. 
So many, in fact, that we would rather refer you to their respective IMDb pages and take it from there. If we listed every single thing they did since 1999, this show would probably be about three hours long. The writing team of Judd Hillett and John Peasley would continue to write for various TV shows, most notably, according to Jim. Huh. Two of those in one day. Good to know. And there has thankfully not been any more attempts to revive Faulty Towers ever since. At least on television, because there has been, honest to God, two separate live stage show and dinner theater productions that's been touring at theaters and hotels around Europe and other parts of the world since 2016. The stage show was hailed by the UK newspaper The Guardian as fun, but pointless. Surprisingly, the interactive dinner show at actual hotel restaurants is much better received. Not that I've been to it, but anything sounds better than something fun and pointless. Which is half of what I can say for both of these TV adaptations. They're pointless, minus the fun. And as is the case with just about any reboot there is out there, it's probably best to stick to the original. Next time on Telehell, commercials of the dam take us to the dawn of the extreme sports era and a cautionary tale about what not to wear when bungee jumping. The pump from Reebok. It fits a little better than your ordinary athletic shoe. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me. Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Oh, one more thing. Just because we watch a lot of TV doesn't mean that we don't want to socialize. Look for us on Facebook and Twitter, both at Telehell Podcast. And of course, you can also go to our own page, telehell.libsyn.com. And don't forget to like, comment, rate, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Libsyn. Just search for Telehell.